Welcome to episode number 262 of Destination Linux with your brand new to open source or a guru of sudo. This is the show for you. My name is Ryan. I'm Jill. I'm Brandon. And I'm Michael. Wait, Brandon. That's that's yeah. a different that's a different name. That's a new. What are you, what are you doing, doing here, here, Brandon? <laughs> You're supposed to be on the pseudo show. That's next yeah. door. Well, well, I I didn't tell you guys, but I have root access to every show. Oh, that explains oh, so much. Good one, Brandon. <laughs> nice. Well, you understand why Brandon's here with us later. We needed his expertise to cover one of these topics this week. So welcome, Brandon, from the pseudo show. Also just off camera, but piped in directly from our 60,000 square foot virtual stadium also known as Jitsi Room, is our glorious community of fact-checking, ego-busting patrons that are hanging out with us right now. And on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we're going to discuss the increase in malware on Linux and ask the question, do you need anti-malware software? Should you be installing that in Linux now that it's growing so much in popularity? Then we're going to discuss some nice enhancements to Microsoft Office alternative only Office Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this coming up right now on Destination Linux. This week, our community feedback comes from Shickle, or Chicken, people may know him as. Shickle Chicken? Chicken Shickle? He's a member of the community out there, but he wrote on our discourse forums where he asked a really interesting question that I wanted to bring up to our panel of experts here. The question is, how do you secure your account two-factor authentication? Shickle goes on to explain he uses Bitwarden. That's a win. That's what you should be using. Mm -hmm. They're not only a sponsor, but they just happen to be the greatest password manager out there. Agreed. But also wants to use the one-time password options or the two-factor authentication piece with Bitwarden, but wanting to know if he should use a different two-factor authentication to kind of increase the security there. So you're not reliant on just one tool if somebody was able to get access into one tool. So the question for the host here is, what 2FA options do you use? Do you use the OTP built into Bitwarden and use it as your password manager as well, or do you use something different? So we'll start with our guest here, Brandon. What are some of the options you do for two-factor authentication? Yeah, so I pretty much use a free OTP for every um, OTP code I need, except when I need to share an account that I've set up with two-factor authentication. And then I, quite frankly, it's reluctantly use Bitwarden for that. Uh, I just don't want all that in one spot because if you have your password and your two-factor authentication in one place, even though, even though it's in Bitwarden and that's also secured with two-factor authentication, like if it's compromised, it, it's just too big of a risk. I, I agree with that. Bitwarden does more for security than any other password manager. They have third-party audits. Of course, there's open source elements. People can go audit all of this stuff. They do everything right that they can, but nothing is impenetrable. Nothing, you know, and people can make mistakes with their own passwords. It doesn't even have to be a Bitwarden thing. So for me, yes, I use a separate two-factor authentication for certain accounts that I really need to make sure are secure. If it's like some, I don't know, subscription to a regular website where no personal information is really stored then I'll use OTP and Bitwarden. But if it's like a bank or something else, I'll use a secondary form of authentication. So for me, that's YubiKey is one of my primary ways to keep my account secure. And that's a hardware-based key that I highly recommend you look into if people haven't set those up. So you can use that as your two-factor authentication. Or I'll use another app like Aegis, A-E-G-I-S. And I like their service as well. It's not stored in a cloud. So you know I have it set up so that when my phone is near my home network, it 
will back that up encrypted to one of my drives. Uh, but that's another option to use as well. But as much as I love Bitwarden and I think they are the most secure password manager, I also think having two forms of different authentication and not keeping everything in one place is a good security measure. Jill, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I do the same thing. So I have a backup, but I have an interesting, my original way of uh, saving passwords and, and two-factor two authentication is I actually have a really old school method shickle that I use, a GPG encrypted text file with my passwords and 2FA recovery codes on a floppy disk. <laughs> Nobody's going to get you, Jill, on a no. Very old Nobody's going to hack you. <laughs> Very old school. And I've been doing that for years since I've been in computing. That, that's just the way. So I always have that as a backup. And uh, But for today's modern computing, I also use a YubiKey like Ryan, especially on my laptops when I'm traveling. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like Bitwarden's OTP as well. Yep. <laughs> Is that a floppy disk, a 3D printed save icon? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, I have hundreds of computers with floppy drives. So, you know, it works for me because of my computer collection. I think it's absolute genius, Jill, because literally you have taken out every hacker that's not 40 plus. Like if they're not 40 plus, they will not know what to do with the floppy disk. Even if you left it in a drive and they're able to access it, they're like, I don't know what this is. Or you just have have the floppy disk just laying somewhere and they're like, what's this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love that, Joe. <laughs> you know what? I might have to go see if I could fit a three and a half inch drive into uh, my system here because I think that's quite brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Michael, uh, I don't think you have anything as secure as Jill because Jill has no. clearly beat us all. Yes, but Jill what wins. are you using here? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to look into see if I can find a floppy drive somewhere. Uh, but I, I do have some authentication stuff that I use that is similar in the structure. I have multiple different uh, options depending on what I'm using it for. And uh, Brandon, for those who didn't notice, Brandon held up a floppy drive. Was that a floppy drive or a zip drive, Brandon? It looked it like a zip a, drive. Yeah, you know, it was a floppy drive. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he so he could implement it immediately if he wanted to. <laughs> yeah. So, we all need uh, one of those now. So I use Bitword and OTP, uh, a free OTP and Authy in a mix of depending on what I'm using it for and depending on what service it is. Because I, I do agree with the help, having different uh, different pl- platforms and different services to make sure that you don't have it all in one basket kind of thing. So uh, I do like the Bitword and OTP for a lot of reasons, especially with like Brandon said about sharing. But I do, uh, I, I use other Authy probably equally as much as I use free OTP. So just as someone who's in telecom, I feel like I have to put this warning out here. Do not use text message-based two-factor authentication. Mm. It's very insecure. It is very easy to be hacked with that, especially if you're doing things on your phone like banking, cryptocurrency exchanges, those type of things that are highly looked after for hackers and things to go after. They do SIM swapping and things like that. Uh, It happens more often than it should, but it is a thing. So if you have an option where you're getting all of your two-factor authentication text codes to you, go into that service and change it to utilize a secondary app or something that's a lot more secure than that. But otherwise, I'm happy to hear all of the hosts here have pretty (laughs) solid security plans in place. Jill beats us all, but Brandon's ready to go uh, to follow the Jill floppy way of yeah. storing stuff. I might even do all my passwords as a backup on a floppy too, because even if they broke into a safe and got that disc, again, if they're not 40 plus, they're not going <laughs> yeah. to know what 3D printed save icon. It, especially yeah. if it's a five and a quarter disc or an eight inch disc. I still have some passwords on an eight inch. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. 
Even if they got to Disney, they wouldn't even have be able to get a drive yeah. to be able to get your passwords. We got to figure out how to put it on an eight track now. Yeah. Genius. Oh yeah. That that exists. Yeah, like it's a DAT tape, genius. you could record, you know, information like we used to on cash registers back in the day. <laughs> Why not? There you go. You're getting more secure by the minute, Michael. But we love hearing from our worldwide community. What we want you to do is get your official DLN mug. Fill it with some coffee or bubbly. Sit down on the nearest stool, or if you're an adult, that you sit down on a chair and send an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. Or you can join our worldwide community in a go ongoing discussion on our DLN community forum by going to dlnforum.com. And that's where we got this awesome question and got to hear from the hosts about the security practices that we put in place. You know what else is awesome, though? DigitalOcean. Now's the perfect time to dive into DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With that platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever. Simply point app platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository. Let it do all the heavy lifting for you, whether using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, container images. They do it all. You've got to check this service out. By running app platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower. Plus, it's built on DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure. As a Destination Linux listener, this is the best part. They're going to give you a $100 credit to go check the service out. You can put a bunch of small droplets, one giant droplet. You could do your web servers, your websites. You could put your applications up there. You could try everything there available with this $100 credit by going to do dot co slash dln so you can type this in your browser do dot co slash dln and that's going to give you a page with that hundred dollar credit when you sign up we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of destination linux so linux has been growing and growing for years and in recent years it has gotten a rocket boost sort of so to speak thanks to the gaming support improvements and things like that but with the growth in the popularity of Linux, there can be some downsides to this, such as more malware showing up. In gross. fact, yes, gross. A CrowdStrike report looking into the attack data from 2021 shows that Linux-targeted malware grew by 35% in 2021. And now, while we've enjoyed not deploying or paying for malware protection on Linux desktop for many years, uh, decades even, is it time to start? And that is the topic we're going to discuss this week. I have had so much fun in Linux not having to purchase these monthly subscription services that are also for antivirus and anti-malware that are also in a lot of ways like malware themselves. Like some of these are literally worse than having <laughs> malware. Like I'm like, nah, I'll just uninstall the antivirus, anti-malware and keep the virus because the anti-malware could be so intrusive. They'll pop up with ads constantly. They'll tell you your subscription's near, or they'll just randomly tell you, hey, we're protecting you. Like, thanks. I expected you to do so. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I've enjoyed one of the things I loved about coming from Windows to Linux is not having to deal with that. And it's not just about the cost. It's kind of about the annoyance factor as well. And I guess in my mind, I've never had to have that because... Linux has so much more security by default than Windows does. Yeah. And a lot of that is because of yeah, the yeah. privilege escalation capabilities. And of course, we have lots of sandboxing and we have encryption by default. Well, we should be installing encryption by default. Most people are encrypting by default and that's become a big part of the installer. And we've 
we've just got a lot more things to protect us overall firewalls and those things that are built in but it does seem like there's more and more malware being reported out there and more and more of it affecting linux servers specifically so i feel like eventually that stuff with the servers it's very complex a lot of times it could be big you know big organizations or even governments behind those type of attacks but that stuff those attacks get out there into the open regular hackers or script kitties or whatever can grab that stuff down and start attacking desktops with it. If the same thing's working on a server, a lot of times it can also work on a desktop. So that's why we brought Brandon on here. Cause I'm kind of curious, mm. Brandon, what your thoughts are on here. Cause I feel like we're getting to a point where maybe we have to start considering putting this software back on our systems. If these attacks keep up as frequently as they are coming. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, uh, that we'll need to start putting antiviruses on a uh, Linux desktops, at least not right now, but there are way there are ways that we can mitigate these attacks. And, and most, and like you said, Ryan, most of this is targeted towards servers. That's where Linux is pervasive. I mean, it's everywhere. Like Linux is, I think now 60% of cloud infrastructure, if not more right. at this point. So I highly recommend like, putting up stuff on your web server, email server that will prevent attackers from even getting in in the first place. So being proactive, there's uh, solutions such as fail to ban. And I recently covered on the pseudo show, uh, CrowdSec, an interview with the CEO in episode 42. And we also had a, another one in episode 14. But what CrowdSec does is it proactively blocks known bad IPs. So uh, anyone that's trying to attack a web server, like if they're attacking it from that IP and, you, and you've enabled CrowdSec, it'll be blocked right away. And then, of course, it creates its own local database, like if someone's attacking you from a non-known uh, IP. But that's really the big thing I've been uh, pushing in the security realm is being more proactive, you know, block the bad actors uh, before they can uh, even bother to uh, attack you. And that, and that's mostly on the server front. Uh, on the desktop front, there's definitely ways to protect yourself. And quite frankly, this is some best practices I actually learned w uh, in like the Windows 2000 era, which is not every user on a computer needs to be admin. So make, mm -hmm. that's a good right? Right. So like on my computer, even though I know what I'm doing, I mean, I make sure that uh, my local user only has permissions with, you know, using sudo to install and update RPMs. And I typically with flat packs, I'm, I'm using user level. It's only installing it with it for my user. Mm -hmm. uh, only time I do is if it's on one of my shared computers, it's at a system level. But even then, the sandbox is at the uh, user level. Just the executable happens to be outside the home directory. So you're only giving your user permissions to just basically do updates and install software, <laughs> but nowhere else. You're You're taking them out of other groups in which damage could be done if somebody, for instance, got access to that specific user. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, exact and user and only add user excuse add users to groups where it makes sense. Like uh, my user, I do run virtual machines, so it is part of the KVM group. 
in in a general sense, like the the defaults that come on Linux distributions these days, especially with the desktop distributions, uh, they already have those set up where you're only getting access to specific groups. And I think even like the KVM uh, vir- virtual manager stuff, you have to manually put yourself into those groups to, in order to do it. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it, we kind of like well, we talked about it before that the having the administrator access is not a good a good option. And having it so like the one of the main reasons why Linux is by default better in protection is because it does things like that up front without having but to worry all about changing it. Do that, right? Like so there's a lot of That's people true. who want to run things like Kali Linux. And Kali Linux is amazing for what it's for. Right. But it's not for a daily desktop right. driver that people use it for. And a lot of people are doing that. And one of the one of the issues is privilege escalation. You could get in trouble with big time in Kali Linux because a lot of those applications and things that are pre-installed in there require pseudo access. So it's kind of granted across the board in a lot of ways. So unless you're going to go and remove all of that, those security holes, that is not a daily driver distro. That's not what it's well, made for. Well, and also to be clear, Kali Linux themselves say don't use it for a daily exactly. driver. <laughs> yeah, that's not a yeah. download Kali Linux. Kali Linux is amazing. They're telling you don't use this as a daily driver. Like the defaults in certain distros, actually, you know, I use Fedora. Yeah, the admin is that if you give your user admin privileges through Cockpit, like if you're in Cockpit, you can click add. Uh, this is an administrator account. So uh, when you do sudo, it'll let you do anything, right? For for the most part, uh, I I pare it down. I can execute DNF. Maybe I, I've added a few other things that my user can edit but I'm pretty strict about that across the board. So that helps with privilege escalation, but what about nefarious apps, Brandon? There's AppArmor, there's SE Linux, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, we have to say a lot of distros don't have these things by default. So these are great security measures. Um, I'll let you talk about them first, and, and I'm sure you're going to say you like SE Linux a lot. But uh, we could talk about kind of what they do and why people should make sure they have this in their distro if it's not there by default. Yeah. So, you know, what SE Linux and AppArmor, they're mandatory access control programs. So basically, it prevents a program that it doesn't recognize. Like if it's not part of a specific SE Linux user or group, it will not allow it to write to certain parts of the file system. But typically, if it's executed as a, as a particular user, like if, if it's, say, I executed accidentally uh, some malicious program as my user, it'll, it can access my home directory. So if it's like a, if it's going to encrypt my home directory, uh, it'll just encrypt my home directory. But that's where everything, that's m- the important part, right? That's what, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, so make sure you have a backup. But. Oh, backups are a big part of this security yes, piece, right? And Jill, I yeah. knew you were going to jump in there. I was excited <laughs> about back. Okay, yeah. let's let Jill talk about backups for a second. I'm not even going to try to jump in on backups. Jill, this is Jill's do you passion. use floppy disks? <laughs> yes, I, I do. Always have three backups of everything. So yeah, it is that that is kind of my golden rule of staying safe with antiviruses and uh, with uh, viruses and malware is uh, keep your Linux systems updated on desktop server. Mm-hmm. And on the Internet of Things devices when you can. You know, Linux IoT devices are an easy target for malware. 
because they often use older Linux kernels that are hardened for embedded systems, and thus are very hard to upgrade at times and really hard for the average user <laughs> to upgrade. So that's been a really big big issue with uh, malware uh rising on Linux. Absolutely. There's also cases yeah. where the the IoT devices don't even do updates at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's how they could get into your network. A lot of people were putting these things like blink cameras and other things that are opening your firewall up. They're they're forwarding ports. And these are ways that people were kind of getting in. Printers are a big one as well, initially yes. getting into your <laughs> network and then then they're able to through privilege escalation and other things uh, start causing damage. So be careful what you're putting on your network physically as well, I would think would be a huge tip for protecting people. Don't have all of these kind of cameras and other IoT devices just kind of running free reign. They should really be on a separate network from your main computers and other networking equipment if you're even going to have those things around because it, it's definitely a big security hole that a lot of people take advantage of. Another thing that I recommend also people do is to do some research into the router that your cable company or your fiber company gives you or anyone and see if there's, you know, a third party one you can get that can be more secure and that you can upgrade and that and, and your switches on your network. <laughs> That's so we've got too. some tips overall <laughs> that I think we have, but I want to bring it all together for a user because there's also, we haven't talked about Sophos, ClamAV, ClamTK, which is the GUI for it. There's ESET, Node32, Komodo. There are, there are antivirus solutions out there and malware solutions for the Linux desktop if you want to install one. I think ClamAV and ClamTK together are kind of the go-to for more des most desktop users at this point. Brandon, from a server enterprise standpoint, is there one of these that you like more than the other or recommend? Or No, uh, typically I haven't seen a lot of antivirus on servers. Mostly, like I said, it's it's more so prevention. I, I have seen... I, I shouldn't say I haven't seen antivirus on a Linux server. I have. I I've seen semantic antivirus and others. But typically, it's not to protect the Linux server. It's to protect Windows servers. Because uh, these are with mixed yeah. environments, right? Because a lot of times you'll have some Windows servers mixed in with some Linux servers. And now you've got this mixed environment, which now viruses become even more prone yeah. to happening, right? Yeah, exactly. And the, really the main thing I highly recommend to users, whether they're using a Red Hat Linux distribution or a Debian-based uh, distribution, is to enable mandatory access controls, whether that is SA Linux or AppArmor. Mm -hmm. I'll give a, an example. This is an old example, but there are lots of recent examples that have been published. A few years ago, there was a CVE for QEMU. It was a vulnerability in the uh, floppy disk code. Uh, for virtual floppy disk code, since we're on the subject of floppy disks anyway. Uh, <laughs> so the, the code is 20 years old. No one really looked at it. Uh, the vulnerability was called Venom. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and S, and uh, it was a pretty major problem because it allowed a guest uh, to get access to the host kernel uh, and allow it to write to the host uh, file system uh, through the floppy disk driver. Now, the technology mandatory access controls uh, like SE Linux and AppArmor, uh, if they were configured properly, uh, I know SE Linux handled it great because of a technology inside of SE Linux called SVIRT, and it prevented it 
uh, from even being exploited. It was a great mitigation uh, right there. So you in keep SE Linux enabled. I know a lot of people it's like still have it in this mindset. I'm going to disable it, but it's not that hard to configure. And in many ways, the SE Linux uh, troubleshooting tool will help you configure SE Linux properly. Mm-hmm. And also, if you have uh, certain distributions, they're, they're going to have AppArmor and SE Linux by default. So as a Fedora user, I just have SE Linux set up and I don't have to mess with it because there's really no need for me to do so. Now, there are some times if you want to do some you know, special uh, networking configuration stuff that you want to go into, then you'll have to get into that. But the average user wouldn't really have to touch anything. They just just let it be, let it do what it what it does. Which is one of the big things we need to talk about here, which is the user's responsibility. One of the reasons why I think a lot of this malware doesn't grow so fast in the Linux space is generally Linux users are definitely more knowledgeable about how their operating system and networking and things work just as a general rule. So, and a lot of these things can be mitigated by making sure you're using proper security measures. We talked about physically not having things on your main network that are basically opening up ports and, and, possibilities for people to enter, um, not clicking on email links, right? And things like Mm -hmm. that through phishing scams, not downloading random software off the internet, making sure if you're using things like the AUR that you're actually reading, like using Trizen, which allows you to read what's in that code before you go and install it and not just installing everything you can uh, from a package manager. But Linux is more secure because it has those repositories as well, right? We're not just randomly typing in software in Google and downloading it right there. So that gives some safety there with Linux as well. So ultimately, I think Linux users are still safe on the desktop. Like I see some of these things, a 32% growth can sound a lot, but when it you also started how, super small, it so, yeah. started super small. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, in a lot of these numbers, it just depends on how you're looking at them and those type of things. But there are simple things that you can do. And if you're somebody who's using something like Arch, as for instance, it does in the guide talk take you through making sure that you have mandatory access controls installed. But if you don't follow that guide and you're just kind of doing one of these guides online that just gets you to the point where you're booting into a desktop and you're not following the Arch Wiki, then you're not going to have that by default. So that's why we're telling people, go check, make sure you have a firewall enabled. Go check on your distro, make sure you have mandatory access control, mm-hmm. AppArmor, SE Linux, and then make sure your privilege escalation is limited by not allowing not running sudo everywhere and mitigating what rights your users have. And you're going to be safe without having to pay for a subscription. And if you want a virus or malware service, there's ClamAV and ClamTK, which has done a pretty good job uh, mitigating a lot of these things uh, that exist out there. And there's also a plugin for ClamAV, by the way, that allows you to have real-time protection. Uh, Because a lot of people know that uh, ClamAV typically was more reactive, but there are some plugins to make it a little more proactive to be searching for that stuff. So check that out. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And I think it's really worth noting that the uh, the way that Linux works, that preventative stuff is the is the better thing because you know these antivirus tools are uh, exclusively just for you've already been attacked. How do we solve it and get rid of the thing? But having these other tools that make it where you you basically have these uh, these these man, the mandatory access control systems like SE Linux and AppArmor does allow you not have to worry about it as much as you would if you were a Windows user. And I I do want to point it out that some distributions have AppArmor 
and some of them uh, don't have AppArmor by default, but you can install them like Ryan mentioned. But there's also different versions of AppArmor depending on the distribution. So you might have to, you might have to do some tweaking depending on what version of what distro you're using because of the different stuff of AppArmor. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to be the same on OpenSUSE, for example, that they are on Ubuntu because they, they work differently. Even though they're both AppArmor, they work a little bit different. So it's uh, going to be slightly different. We see like tutorials about how to make changes and whatnot. There might be some differences. So just, you know, keep that in mind. Yeah. And also keep your web browsers updated. And, oh, yeah. Uh, surf securely. <laughs> uh, do sandboxing in, in, say, Mozilla Firefox. Yep. Wonderful. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> now, Brandon, so this isn't a huge issue if you're taking the right preventative measures here, as we've just covered. But I do want to ask you, what are some real Linux security issues we should be concerned Uh-oh. about there? That you're Why are you bringing that up, Ryan? Because <laughs> we've got Brandon here, and I want to put the spotlight on him, right? <laughs> well, this, my point of view on this is, you know, we're not taking advantage of modern hardware security tools. I know some people may disagree with this and uh but the I feel like not in the Linux not, community everybody agrees on everything. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> we're Very all agreeable. one big happy family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh for one one big example is we're not utilizing TPM modules uh that are on our laptops. I know there's a lot of like association with like oh TPM is just used for BitLocker. Yeah, but you can utilize TPM with Lux and uh and other security keys on your system, uh, but we don't do it by default. It's uh, and it's in some cases it's very difficult to configure. And then the other thing is many Linux distributions cannot, and that's yeah, that that's not necessarily their fault. Cannot use Secure Boot, and I I know there's a lot of controversy around Secure Boot, mm-hmm. but it is useful. So if someone happens to get access to your system and installs a malicious kernel module you know it's not signed and that and a secure boot would prevent the, uh, your system from booting with that unsigned kernel module it's that's definitely more so important in uh, the server space I think it's important on the desktop but I don't disable secure boot but I use a distribution that can utilize it. You know, if I was using a different distribution, you know, I would likely have to disable it. It's something I do think we need to address in the long term for desktop security, server security to utilize TPM and secure boot. Yeah, those are good points, especially with the secure boot thing because of the, the there's a lot of distributions that people are not aware that they even need it and they think that they should turn it off because it's a Windows specific thing that locks them into Windows or something like that. And in the beginning, it kind of did that, but it also has been adopted by a lot of distributions, especially all the, the main, like the big main distributions that you've heard of, like Fedora and Ubuntu and OpenSUSE have secure boot su- uh, support. Uh, so those are going to be uh, you know, just fine. And I, I do, I think it's an interesting points about these hardware mechanisms because there are some ways you can use them and some ways you can't. And I think that I, I agree with you completely that the future, the future's core boot, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, as much as we'd love it to be, uh, that would solve the problem. Yeah. <laughs> but also, uh, I, I, I want to emphasize, uh, use utilizing TPM, especially as we start going into the mobile space. Because a lot of these devices uh, that that we're 
shipping do have some sort of secure element, uh, but again, we're not utilizing them uh, in Linux uh, right away. And with TPM, your device will be more secure if you're actually utilizing it. But serious, uh, in a serious note, what is the solution to this? Because you brought up, and, and I agree with you, by the way, uh, on both of these points. And to me, even though Core Boot isn't there yet, right? It hasn't had mass adoption. That is a solution to this problem is. with the certifications and things. But what are some other solutions? Is it a matter of the distros going and getting their the, themselves registered? Is there a cost thing where we as a community can donate to help them cover that? Or what is the hindrance to keeping some distros to work with Secure Boot and others not? You know, some of it is you got to either use the current keys that are available, right? And usually they're the Microsoft keys. So that that that's the problem is you got to get the keys in the in Secure Boot with the, the appropriate vendors. And they have to register that with Windows, I think? In many cases, they do need to use the Microsoft keys. Yep. Some cases mm-hmm. they can produce their own, but if they produce their own, it, they have to work with every vendor. And that's just not scalable for many projects. It, is there a possibility for a distribution that is a derivative of another one that does have a secure boot key to be able to use the key of the derivative that they're using? I actually don't see why not. I don't know for sure, but I don't see why they couldn't. Okay. That's good to know. We got a, a question in the chat uh, that I think is very interesting. Uh, Cubicle Nate from the Linux Saloon podcast that's on the network asked, are there some guides on knowing uh, AppArmor and SE Linux on your desktop, or should users just accept the defaults provided by the distros? Whew, that's a good question, Mike. I typically, with SE Linux, use defaults, but there are special configurations with SE Linux that you should understand, especially if you're installing applications that don't traditionally support it. Like if the guide says to disable SE Linux, it's because they haven't configured the app to utilize it. And then you and but you could write an SE Linux rule and contribute it back so that they can change the guide to not disable SE Linux. Um, and the same goes for AppArmor. You can write AppArmor policies. And what's really cool about AppArmor. How, how you can write specific policies. It was originally written for desktop applications. Right. Like one of the mm-hmm. showcase uh, demos for AppArmor was securing Firefox on SUSE Linux. That was one of the showcase demos uh, back in 2006, 2007. And that, because uh, it wasn't really meant for, it, I, it was being driven towards servers at the time, but that was the showcase is like, look, we secured Firefox, so it can't write outside of this specific directory. To me, I viewed it as like Pi-hole, where usually when you get your Pi-hole set up, you install the defaults, and that's kind of good to get you started. And then as you start working with it more and you realize maybe it's blocking some sites you don't want it to, or you need to change some rules, or you go online and you find some other profiles that people are utilizing uh, that you can load into your pie hole. It, it's kind of very similar to that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And and there are people who create profiles out there or can talk you through tutorials and things to make adjustments if you run into any issues and, and, and stuff out there with these tools. But they are very configurable and you can make sure that it doesn't get to the point where it's interrupting your day-to-day work. And honestly, I've never had a case where any of these have really interrupted my day-to-day work. So they're, they're very non-intrusive. They're not like an antivirus software constantly popping up to 
tell you. I mean, they've been involved for years. Like the distros that have yeah. SE Linux have had it for years. <laughs> the distros that have had AppArmor have had it for years and people don't even notice it. So it's more of like we're talking about a thing that you might need to check out at some point, but you also probably have been using it for years and didn't know it. Don't even mm-hmm. know it. Yeah. 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 If you're on Fedora it, and you never turned it off, uh, it's on. And if you didn't even know it was there, you likely, especially for me, especially since like Fedora 18, I don't even know it's there anymore. Like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, and like for the other issues around like TPM, just make it easier to configure. That's really the big thing is like, it's not clear on how to configure to use TPM on Linux. Got it. Well, Brandon, you are a wealth of expertise. Thank you for coming on to help us with this topic. And there's something else that I know you're very passionate about that Michael's about to talk about because we were just talking about it at the beginning of the show. That is true. And that is our next sponsor, Bitwarden. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager. We all use Bitwarden because it is awesome. And it's also open source, which makes it even better. And you get peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, Bitwarden provides you with tools to store your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. Plus, you get access to your data across many different types of devices, whether it's your web browser, mobile apps, desktop application, or even on the command line. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption on your local devices before it ever leaves your device, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started right now. Did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out their, their premium account because it's less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gives you a bunch of extra stuff like one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Bitwarden Send, Priority Customer Service, so much more. Get started for less than a dollar per month. They also have business and family plans. So if you know someone who wants to use a, a password manager, but they don't know how to and you want to help set them up, you can do so by getting a family plan with Bitwarden and just you get all these benefits and get make the smart move like many of the community have and check out bitwarden.com slash DLN. And thanks again for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. So we are very fortunate in the open source community to have a bunch of different great office suites. One of those alternative office suites, like uh, there's a lot of people talking about the difference between LibreOffice and Microsoft Office, and LibreOffice gets a lot of attention, and it is great, but there's another alternative called OnlyOffice, and they just released version 7, and they have uh, different options for uh, like a Microsoft Word, PowerPoint, and Excel alternatives, which packs a lot of new features in this latest one. Uh, for one example is the online forms. They have create and share a form online with friends and collaborators. Simply save a file as a PDF or an O form to get started, and you get uh, you basically you can act, all have uh, group fields together and have access and fill out the forms from from a mobile device, and you can even create dropdowns and stuff like that. But Ryan mentioned how he has been using OnlyOffice for quite a while, so I'm curious, have you had a chance to check out the 7.0 release? I have checked out 7.0. I haven't had a chance to use the forms yet. I mean, I want to like figure out a random reason to just send you something that has dropdowns and <laughs> things in it uh, to fill out. Are we friends? Check yes or no. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I no. like only office a lot because I have to deal with a lot of individuals who uh, send me Microsoft Office files, right? They work in Windows 
and they're sending me office files and I need something that allows me to make sure if I'm sending files back and forth or that when I'm reading their, their particular PowerPoints or whatever they're sending, that it's as accurate as possible. And only office tends to be more accurate when it comes to working with docx, XLS, X and PowerPoint, uh, PPTX files than LibreOffice. Now, LibreOffice does an amazing job. And if you can get away with using it and you don't have the problem where people are sending you a bunch of Office stuff, keep using it. But I like to mention only Office to people because a lot of in a lot of cases, if you're not using like Office Online or something like that, and you need to collaborate with somebody who's using Windows solutions, I find only Office has a more accurate way of representing those files when you're reading them. You don't have as many things kind of gibbered around the screen and all that type of stuff. Yeah, I was really impressed with uh, only Office 7.0. There's lots of awesome new features, including a comprehensive dark mode, which is actually launched as the default now. Woohoo! Yeah, that's <laughs> very important to have dark mode. How do they handle yeah. the dark mode? Is it just like the dark mode of the interface, or do they actually dark mode the like the documents too? This version, they do both now. So it's not just mm -hmm. the interface. It now includes the the dark. Um, uh, dark support for the canvas background, Very which was cool. really awesome. So it, it was more like you're using, you know, a text editor, a, a text editor to write code. I really like that feature. I like really that, but cool. do they, does it convert? Like when you print it, does it convert like this dark mode text into like a regular printing? Like, <laughs> that I don't know. I haven't tried to print yet. <laughs> I mean, who uses a printer these days? Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't even have a printer at home anymore. I don't I either. Use a printer, Michael. What are you calling me? Outdated? <laughs> you and you're talking about getting a floppy disk drive? I'm the one no. who's outdated? You use a 3D printer. There's a difference. Oh, no, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I don't I don't even have a regular printer anymore. So I don't I don't know. I guess I'm the only one with a printer. I have one too. Brandon, me and you are printer buddies, man. We both got oh, printers. Yeah. yeah. You guys have, need two for your work. I, I print at work. You have work, two printers? So I don't have to do it at home. Well, I have two printers. I have a photo printer and a standard uh, document printer. Well, you always have to have two or three printers because one or yeah. two of them are always offline and not working. So that's the fun with printers. Uh, one of the things I love about this is this the password protection for spreadsheets as well. This is very important if you're sending things like yeah. financials and stuff through a spreadsheet. However, I did kind of get a chuckle out of this because of a story. This was many years ago uh, in which an employee had locked a Excel spreadsheet down with a password and we needed to get in uh, to the spreadsheet. And I just opened the spreadsheet in Notepad. And what you get is a bunch of gibberish but all after all that gibberish, eventually you'll see something like Volcano Rocks 2013. And you're like, that's the password. And sure enough, that's how you would hack an Excel spreadsheet's password. So hopefully it's more secure than that in the passwords. Uh, but it is cool that they have that version history with collaboration as well. So you can see things like different colors to identify version edits and different users who are editing. So OnlyOffice is really kind of moving towards this cloud office suite type solution, right? They still have the desktop app, of course, that you could download, but they're moving a lot of their services towards that. And that's exciting because I want an alternative to Microsoft Office and Google Docs. Mm -hmm. Both of them I have privacy issues and concerns with. So I like the idea that we kind of have somebody who is a silver member of the Linux Foundation bringing their office suite to the forefront on the cloud. Yeah, absolutely. And they also, in addition to NextCloud, OwnCloud, and C-File support, you can now connect K-Drive and LifeRay to OnlyOffice. 
So the, the more the merrier. I actually uh, knew of K-Drive, but not Life Ray. So that was, I learned a little bit about that. <laughs> Nice. Very cool. <laughs> like I haven't. I'm curious about like the trying out the the only office on the cloud. It does sound interesting, especially I've tried only office on my on my desktop, and it has been fantastic. So my yeah. experience with it and what I I to be fair and to be honest, I haven't really. I don't use documents that much. I don't do spreadsheets all that much. But when I do, I have had issues with LibreOffice in the past, and I've not really had any issues with OnlyOffice, uh, except for one little tiny thing where when I open a spreadsheet uh, for to, I open the spreadsheet application to import a CSV file, and then it asks me every single time by default if the tab is the delimiter I want to use. Like it's a CSV file. Please make it detect the commas. <laughs> that would be nice. Anyway, ah. not that important. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to say I saw a like, an, like a review about the news of related for the 7.0 come out, and they said the next the latest version of OnlyOffice 7.0 is out, and it still has caps locks st- uh, stuck on, and that that amuses me because the the way that they <laughs> uh, they they give the name of the application, every letter in OnlyOffice is capitalized. So it just uh, made me laugh yeah, when I saw that. Oh, cute. yeah. Well, also make sure to check out Destination Linux episode number 222. We actually interviewed Michael Koratov, the PR manager at OnlyOffice. And I just remembered, you guys, the last printer <laughs> I had hooked up here was my dot matrix printer to my IBM XT. Ah, uh, dot matrix, <laughs> of course. Those were uh, the days when printers were good, wasn't it? The yeah. Dot matrix. I love, I love the sounds. Yes, the know? sound of it. Very was loud. It's like ASMR <laughs> for me. Hey, you guys forgot the most important new feature in Lonely Office is that you can now open um, uh, new. Do- uh, you can now oh. open up documents in their own dedicated window instead window. of tabs. Very. Oh, true. nice. Yeah, that's pretty. That, cool. That's probably my favorite feature. So, Jill, speaking of favorite features, we've loved Humble Bundle on this show for a long time, but they're not like OnlyOffice. They're taking features away from us. What is happening here? Yeah, and I I need to apologize. This is going to be a sad gaming segment. <laughs> well, well, if anybody could take a sad gaming segment and make it happy. But it isn't completely. It isn't sad-ish. I want to make yeah. it, yeah, sad-ish. I want to make it happy in the end. So, yes, Ryan, Humble Bundle has been a service we've, promoted over the years for its DRM-free games and its donations to charity along with support for Linux. However, in a very strange and sudden shift, the company is no longer going to support Linux or Mac with their Humble Trove. So the Humble Trove, for those of you that don't know, is a catalog of uh, over 70 DRM-free games and uh, Humble Bundle originals. So starting February 1st, they will go from having multiple tiers of subscription service options to just one option that is $12.99 per month, and it will only support Windows games. The reason is, is they're introducing a launcher app that only works in Windows. Lame. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So if you have any games in the Humble Trove, you need to download them before February 1st or at least redeem your Steam keys. And you can go on the Humble w- website and they'll list the Humble Trove uh, games that you for sure... As I want to download the instruction <laughs> manual of how Humble Bundle runs its business, how to be lame 101. I want to make sure I don't lose that uh, document, that really important PDF yeah. that I bought from them. Okay, how to be we, lame and not support Linux. Well, yeah. I agree completely that it's very lame decision. 
just we need to make it clear that this is related to the Humble Trove specifically and the yeah. Humble Games Collection specifically, not the Humble Bundles, not the, whole not the Humble Store, not the <laughs> Humble Choice, like just those things. Now, still lame. I'm saying that as a, as a as a qualifier to let you know to be just clear. This is what it is. However. To say that it could be in the future get worse. Yeah. It could, because if they're going to make a terrible decision by locking down DRM-free games from the people who want DRM-free games, it's a little, it's it's a weird Weird I mean, this decision. has got to be yeah. the biggest community of people who would want DRM-free games is in the open yeah. source community. <laughs> exactly. And you're locking that out. I mean, this is kind of a series of problems that I have with Humble Bundle, though. Like, a lot of their stuff went away from just being DRM-free and went more to just giving you Steam keys. And you weren't getting the same amount of DRM-free games out there. And, the and they almost service... messed up the the whole bundle system where they were changing the charity structure with the different tiers. They almost messed yeah. up until they got a bunch of backlash from the community. They did that. I feel like yeah. they're just, this is why I say like they have, they, they could write a business manual for Lame 101. They're not making any decisions here that make me want to go talk about Humble Bundle more or want to use Humble Bundle more. I'll just go to Steam and get the game. Mm-hmm. And I'll donate on my own. You know, I'm not gonna let children starve. I'm still gonna donate. I don't need you to send the <laughs> 50 cents from the game to them. Yeah. It was just kind of a cool little feature. But now you're ruining other things for me, and you make me sad. Humble bundle, you make yeah. me sad. You don't seem yeah. humble at all. Number one, so you need to change <laughs> yes. your name. And number two, I don't feel like I'm getting to take advantage of the bundle at all because I'm not a Windows user. So this is just it's just yeah uh, it's, it's, it's just lame. sad and and like uh, michael and i were talking about early in the week re- the week i am also seeing the writing on the wall and worry that they will completely stop their linux support in the future possibly this is it's kind of tickling away i it has it's not there yet of course thank goodness this is also but, the worst timing you could possibly have with doing exactly. this exactly like, linux gaming has gotten better and better every year you got the steam deck or the, and the yeah. steam deck, deck exactly. coming out steam deck. and they're gonna cut yes. it right before the steam deck i mean i know oh, this is lame 101 this is horrible and I, i'm bundle. hoping i'm hoping that their windows software you know to to launch the apps actually works on proton uh, or wine so just yeah we don't know if it will or not uh yeah but it, it's just it's a weird decision <laughs> humble bundle you know fix it i know that it was it was purchased by another company and the, and it's probably the, like the people who are now in charge are the ones making the weird decisions but you know stop making bad decisions i that's a, i think that's the pro tip right there yeah, yeah. they Listen they've always been the great provider of indie games and drm games and for those of us on who have been on linux a long time you know after the demise of Desura, we had the humble bun- bundle it's you know, been a wonderful source of DRM. Well, they're dead to me, but you know what's not (laughs) dead to me is Nomax. So everything is customizable in Linux. How'd you like that transition? That was a great segue. You're welcome. You're welcome. Everything is customizable in Linux, including the image viewer that's default on your distro. Perhaps you're looking for a viewer with a little more capabilities like resize, rotate, simple editing, And if you're not happy with your default image viewer, you probably don't even realize you're not happy with your default image viewer. And if you go check out Nomax, that's N-O-M-A-C-S, you're going to realize why you're not happy with your current image viewer because people probably don't think about it a whole lot. But when I found Nomax, I started thinking about it a lot and immediately got rid of my default and switched to this. 
Nomax offers a plethora of features and panels you can add to view things like metadata, file exploration, thumbnail previews for your entire folder, raw and PSD support, image editing, batch processing, all of that in an image viewer. I'm talking crop mm -hmm. images, resize images, pseudo color functions, color adjustments, multi-page TIFF export, rotate the stuff, save screenshots, delete, rename, create mosaic images in an image viewer? Yeah. And it's fast and it's insanely powerful. Like, I love this thing. Where has it been my whole life, Jill? Yeah. And you know what? I had had never played with Nomax before in, until you brought it up in the uh, show notes. So I was excited to play with it. And honestly, I was really impressed that Nomax has batch processing support. That's something advanced that a lot, a lot of graphics right? tools don't even have that the us artists and animators need. I mean, you can actually, with the batch processing, you can convert multiple images to different file formats, as well as being able to transform, flip, rotate, even invert, and even change the background color of multiple images. And yeah, this is an advanced tool that is good for everyone to have to, yes. to make it easier to save multiple files you know, with, with lots of changes. So <laughs> no max cool. One Oh one humble, bundle, yeah. lame one Oh one. See the difference there, how that works. <laughs> Michael, did you check out no max? Cause you made fun of me when I put this in. I did not make you're like, if you were yeah. <laughs> police, and I like, did not make fun of you at all. Did. All I said was Gwen view is amazing. So I don't need anything uh, else. Uh, however, listing off the things that it can do. Yeah. It could do a little more. Than now you need something yeah. else. Ha. I can, I will much, check it out. I will. It's yeah. much nicer than I have gnome, <laughs> or I have right. gnome, or I have mate. Uh, but I use those two. But my favorite and classic is image magic. Yeah, I'm pretty old school. <laughs> like image well, that, magic. Okay, that's not necessarily a Did viewer. You just go raise the roof dance, <laughs> yeah. Brandon, over image magic. What was that? Are you an image magic fan too? Uh, a lot of the old oh. file managers use image magic default right. as their viewers. So. Oh. <laughs> Image magic is just a powerful tool in general. I mean, yeah. uh, you can create animated GIFs. <laughs> cre yeah, create animated yeah. GIFs, add text to uh, JPEG. Like that's how I'm now handling uh, the podcast art for Pseudo Show. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, image magic is, is is very impressive and you could argue it, it is magic. Uh, but it does it does have a little bit of a learning curve. Yes. Whereas I think that Nomax might be a little bit easier yeah. for most people. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> a little bit of a learning curve is an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> it is a very much it's, an understatement, yes. Yeah, you have to have fun with the command line. And it's like the FFmpeg <laughs> of, of image man management. Exactly. It is. Or mencoder, yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, what I love about Nomax is I was able to just play with it without going through any tutorials or anything and unlock the features I was looking for. For instance, yeah. I wanted the thumbnails up at the top. And so I could scroll through everything that was in the folder through thumbnail and have the big picture down below. All these things are very easy to set up in Nomax. So you may not think about your image viewer, but I want you to start thinking about your image viewer by checking out <laughs> Nomax because image viewers do matter. Absolutely. And also something else that matters is becoming like proficient with the command line because a lot of people don't know this. The command line is powerful. 
It wow. is. Absolutely. It is. Tip in itself. We I just know. Stop right there. It's super know. powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so the tip of the week is the being more proficient with it by using some shortcuts. So you can do a lot of stuff in the command line a lot faster than you can with a GUI. Now, sometimes GUIs are faster depending on how how new you are to the to Linux. But if you want to learn like to, to use the command line, you can get a lot of benefit from doing so. And these keyboard shortcuts will speed up your efficiency with the terminal and also with other programs we're going to talk about. Unfortunately, when you look around at various guides, you'll see that there's going to be some kind of uh, suggestions that might be out of date and not be as efficient and as helpful. So for example, there was a guide that was talking about moving the cursor back and forth with control B and then control F by doing one care at a time. And then my instant reaction was, you could also just use the arrow keys. Why would you do that? <laughs> and uh, unless they have a minus 60% keyboard, in which case sometimes <laughs> they don't have arrow keys. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but there's also um, the the option of being able to control, uh, you know, switch back and forth between uh, one word instead of one letter. And that's also in this guide. But again, I don't think it would, Alt B is any faster than Control Left and Right. So let's break it down for the actual suggestions and the actual tip of the week. Left and right arrow, very clear. You're moving in between different characters, but you hold Control while you do left and right, and you actually jump between different words. And if you hold Control and Shift, you will uh, jump and highlight between different words. And this is important because this is. Well, it works on the terminal in most cases, depending on your terminal emulator. If you use console, for example, it will work just fine. If you use uh, other things, it might not. It depends on which emulator to use. But this applies to pretty much any time that you are dealing with text, whether it's a web page form or just a text editor or anything. These functions of the uh, control arrow keys and the control shift arrow keys will also do this. And one more extra tip is that if you hit home or end, it will go to the beginning and end of the line that you are currently on. And control home and end will go to the beginning and end of the entire document or entire web page depending on what you're doing. So those are some tips to get, uh, you know, more updated tips to get more efficient with a terminal. And well, just in general, if you use text a lot on your computer. I kind of love it because they're, th this tips that you were talking about, and Jill's right, like sometimes you don't have arrow keys, but I think 99% of the time <laughs> we do. Uh, but so for those cases, but this was, this guide happened this week, actually, in popular magazines were talking about using these. And I think they overcomplicate things. When you're talking about using yeah. control plus a, my point is they overcomplicate things and it makes people not want to get into the terminal and see the power of it because they could be afraid of it. And what I like about these tips this week too, is if you're using sublime text or any other editor and things, you could still utilize these controls and it's going to make you faster. And the most important part is when people are watching you, it makes you look like a hacker and that's just cool. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know That's what else the reason you learn the command line. <laughs> yeah. Yes, to look cool, obviously. So DLN Extend is now Linux out loud. They've grown so much that they're no longer just an extension of DL and they deserve their own brand and show. So now look for Linux out loud in your podcast players. And they're also holding a logo competition for a $100 gift card. Help them make history with the rebranding here, you could be a part of that. If you go to our discourse forums, if you're an artist, or maybe you want to be an artist and you just want to play around with some art and see if you could create a really cool logo, 
go and make and submit your art there and it may get picked for a $100 gift card. And we've also added Linux Saloon to the DL family. Every Saturday, we have a virtual lug and you could come join us and it's hosted by Nate and Steve's very own. And they're also holding a logo competition for a $100 gift card, which is a ton of fun. Linux Saloon, what couldn't you do with that? Right. Like saloon doors, cowboy hats. (laughs) All um, sorts of options. It's unbelievable what you could do there. So if you want to get your creative flowing, creation flowing, then definitely check out those on the discourse forum, submit your art there. And again, it's great for your portfolio because you could say, hey, look, I created the logos for these two amazing podcasts there. So head to DLL forums to get more information on that. And a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening, however you do it. We love your faces. We are here every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern at DLNlive.com. And the best part, you're all invited to come enjoy the show. We also have our glorious patrons. They're behind the Mm -hmm. scenes. You can't see them, but they get piped in from Jitsi. They get real-time view of us on video. That's a new enhancement that we made, Michael. They get to see us on video real-time and get to hear the audio real-time. And they get the patron after show after this, which they took advantage of a lot last week, yeah, they hanging did. out with Nate. They Graham, took advantage of it before the after the post show. The even show started. was still going, and they're like, "No, nah, we're more interested in talking with Nate." And so they just cut us off and kept <laughs> talking to Nate, which I get. I would uh, yeah, too we, if I, I were it. you, because yeah. Nate was awesome last week. So check out destinationlinux.org/slash/patreon to sign up. And also check out dealinstore.com where you can get a bunch of cool swag such as this stuff that Ryan and Jill are sporting, the 33% more Jill swag. We got new shirts. Also the Pseudo Show shirt that Brandon is is showing off. And I have the Linux is Everywhere shirt on. And you can check out all of these at dealinstore.com. Oh, is that a coaster? Yeah, oh, these are the nice. beautiful she got the coasters. coasters too. Yeah, coasters. we got oh. we got so much and stuff. And mouse pad. Oh, nice. Sweet. <laughs> nice. So much great stuff at Deal and Store. Check it out. We actually changed the the store entirely. So if you haven't you know seen it in the past couple of weeks, there's uh, it's so different. It's got so much more new products. It's got cool stuff that, that are brand new, like the like the mouse pad, and also the desk mat, which is like a giant mouse pad. And that's Ooh. awesome. And we change vendors. Yeah, I'm going to get that. Quality is insane, isn't it? So Dude? much like, better. Yeah. Look how vibrant the colors are in that print. That is Red Bubble is awesome. I've been yeah. buying from them for years, and you get a nice sticker with every purchase nice. <laughs> from Red Bubble. But the quality is just top notch. Like this shirt, it's polyester cotton, but the de- it's not a decal, it's ink. And it's so crisp and clean because usually from other vendors, it would be very blurry, you know, yep. the image, including yep. some of our previous <laughs> vendors. Unfortunately. We fired him. We, we fired him. Brandon <laughs> fired him. We, we, we got yeah. nervous, so we sent Brandon after him, and Brandon fired him, which is great. He, he got root access, and we, and we placed he, yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> so go to dealinstore.com to check out all the new cool stuff. And make sure to check out all the amazing shows we have here on the Destination Linux Network, and we are growing. We have the Pseudo Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, Linux Out Loud, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and put your cowboy hats on and join our Saturday Linux user group, Linux Saloon. Woohoo! That's Yay. awesome. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us this week. Like, I felt like this topic, we had to have you on from the Pseudo Show. And if you are not subscribed mm-hmm. to the Pseudo Show, what is wrong with you? It's an amazing show. Brandon does an amazing job. So go make sure right now that Pseudo Show is a part of your podcast apps. 
You do amazing over there. You get into so many things that I think are on the top of people's minds, and including mm -hmm. those who are interested in getting into enterprise and things as a career. Pseudo Show should be number one on your podcast. Well, right under Destination, right next to Destination Linux on your <laughs> podcast. Like, right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. You need it on there. Above. And, yeah, and your interview with Bill, <laughs> one of our wonderful patrons, was amazing about IT and education. It was yeah, excellent. Yeah. And we'll be continuing that as a ongoing series for uh, uh, until the end of March, I believe. Awesome. Nice. Beautiful. Nice. Check out Pseudo Show and everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Woohoo. See you next week. Yeah. <laughs> Mouse man! <laughs> I can't wait. I'm going to get the mouse man. Extreme. Mouse right. mat too. But look at how beautiful that is. And it's like really soft rubber. So the mouse works really nicely on it. Hey, Jill, not would you say the products from the new store are extremely good? Yeah. <laughs> Redbubble extreme <laughs> for the Destination Linux Can network. we get that sound bite? I just want that as my ringtone or something. Right? I get a message. Jill going extreme.